Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to the final hour of Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on DSTV and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa and Tabiso Luhoko. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. The U.S. Supreme Court rules that a New York prosecutor can have access to President Donald Trump's financial records as part of a grand jury criminal investigation. South Africa bids an emotional send-off to veteran actress and entertainer Mama Mary Twala. And in economics news, Air Botswana to reintroduce the airline's scheduled domestic operations from the 17th of July. But first up, the news with Anne SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Aman Musa, good morning. South Africa has recorded the biggest jump to date in a 24-hour cycle, recording 13,674 new cases of the coronavirus. This brings the national total to 238,339. The number of COVID-19-related fatalities has also risen by 129, totaling 3,720. The number of recoveries stands at 113,061, meaning the country currently has 121,558 active cases. Zoleka Kodashi has more. Gauteng has recorded a total of 81,546 cases after 6,531 infections jump. The Eastern Cape recorded the second highest number of new infections at 2,075 while the Western Cape recorded 1,523 new cases. Gauteng's number of infections now surpasses the Western Cape's cases by 6,731. Health Ministers William Keyes and Provincial Health MEC Bandile Masuku are expected to visit Tswane District Hospital in Pretoria today as part of preparations as the province has become the new epicentre of the pandemic. Meanwhile, South Africa has now conducted 2 million tests for the coronavirus with 56,170 new tests completed since the last report. The health department earlier warned that it would not be possible to conduct tests of the country's over 50 million population. Healthcare services are currently overwhelmed as more people test for the virus, despite experts urging people not to test unless absolutely necessary. With anxiety intensifying among South Africa, over contracting the virus, many have been testing without showing any symptoms. In June, the Western Cape Province changed its testing strategy after backlogs and extensive delays in getting test results from the National Health Laboratory Service. 
Former Liberian President Eileen Johnson-Salifa and New Zealand's former Prime Minister Helen Clark have been appointed to head the World Health Organization's new panel to evaluate the world's response to the coronavirus pandemic. The Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response is an initiative stemming from the World Health Assembly's resolutions, which called for a probe into the origins of the virus and how the matter has been handled. There are over 12 million confirmed cases, 550,000 of them resulting in death. The United States of America has warned West Africa's Sahel nations that it could withdraw its support if security forces violate human rights. The U.S. State Department says it's deeply concerned by the allegations documented by Human Rights Watch. Human Rights Watch said that at least 180 bodies were found in a mass grave in Burkina Faso with evidence suggesting that the government forces were involved in extrajudicial killings. The State Department also cited cited reports by the United Nations multidimensional integrated stabilization mission in Mali. Sudan's Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdok has replaced seven key ministers after protests over the slow pace of reform following the overthrow of Umar al-Bashir as president last year. The government says Hamdok dismissed the health minister and accepted the resignations of the six others, including those in charge of finance, foreign affairs and energy. On Sunday, Hamdok, who heads a power-sharing interim government with the military, replaced the police chief and his deputy. And in sports news, Cricket South Africa says it stands in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. CSA was founded on the principles of non-racialism and inclusion and unity. The vision of CSA to become a truly national sport of winners, supported by the majority, finds resonance in the ethos of Black Lives Matter. The organization's acting CEO Jacques Fall says their cricket development programs have proven that they strive to work to Towards the constitutional promise of a redress and equality for all. Dole says black lives do matter. It is as simple as that, he says, during the celebrations of Nelson Mandela International Day. On the 18th of this month, CSA will further spread the message of anti-racism through the BLM campaign, while they also speak out against all forms of violence and, in particular, the scourge that is gender-based violence and various other causes that are of importance importance to their society and the organization. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Anne. It's 7.06 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. The United States Supreme Court has ruled that a New York prosecutor can have access to President Donald Trump's financial records as part of a grand jury criminal investigation, pouring cold water on assertions that the president enjoyed absolute immunity while in office. In a second ruling, the nine justices denied Congress access to Trump's tax returns for now. In both cases, the court decided by a 7-2 majority to send the congressional case back to the lower courts for more consideration of significant separation of powers concerns while deciding that a New York prosecutor subpoena can also be further litigated on the merits. Show and Bryce Peace reports. 
What the court did critically decide is that the president does not enjoy, as his lawyers put forward, absolute immunity, ruling that the Manhattan district attorney may see Mr. Trump's tax returns and financial records, but that the president can still fight the subpoena in lower courts on the merits. Professor Penelope Andrews of New York Law School explains. It's a critical takeaway because the president's attorneys argued that as president of the United States, he had absolute immunity while he was in office. And the court rejected that because under two prior cases, important landmark cases, the Nixon case, in which President Nixon tried to hide or or, or he did not want to disclose the, the tapes in the White House and the court there ordered him to and said he did not have immunity and that led to his resignation. And similarly, President Clinton tried to hide documents in the sexual harassment case against Paula Jones. And in that case as well, that were used in his impeachment trial. So there are precedents for this. What is remarkable about this case was that the two prior cases, the Clinton and the Nixon cases, the courts was, was unanimous. In the Congressional Subpoenas case, which sought the president's records as part of three investigations into whether Mr. Trump had manipulated his financial statements to avoid tax obligations, possible money laundering through property deals, and whether he was vulnerable to foreign influence, the justices sent the question back down to the lower courts to consider the question of the separation of powers between Congress and the executive. The question of separation of powers obviously is very, very important and the bedrock of the American constitution and and government. What the court is saying is, is they're not saying that the Congress never has the right to seek those, uh, that information, but they must provide justification. And in the lower courts, the, the Congress have not demonstrated sufficiently justification for wanting for the subpoena. And uh, one of the justifications is that it's required to enact legislation. So it was a a defeat for Congress with respect to the year and now of these congressional hearings, but it's not a defeat with respect to the overall immunity and the right of Congress to seek, um, uh, you know, testimony and to seek documents uh, from the president through a subpoena. The Manhattan DA case related to hush money payments made to two women who claimed sexual relations with Mr. Trump, a possible violation of campaign finance laws. With all sides claiming an element of victory, in practical terms it's more complex than a win or a loss. Both sides have had victory, but for some it's a temporary victory. So for the president it's a temporary victory. In the Manhattan DA case, the the, the Supreme Court has said it goes down to the lower court. And the president still has the opportunity, as in every case in which there's a subpoena, to to fight against the relevance and the details of the subpoena. So it's a temporary thing. Of course, the Manhattan DA has won on the legal principle, but practically it means that the president's financial records may not be disclosed to the American public for a very long time. Similarly with the Congress, the president has a victory year with respect to the Congress, but it's a temporary victory because the court has not said that Congress never has the right to obtain this information. The court has basically said you justify it before the lower courts, and you did not do that. The documents will not be released anytime soon, certainly not ahead of November's election. While President Trump complained on Twitter that this was a political prosecution, not fair to his administration, and that the Supreme Court had in the past given broad deference to presidents, but not him. 
Professor Andrews says both decisions were a victory for the rule of law. He's wrong. He's absolutely wrong. It's not the first time that he's wrong. He's wrong on the law. As I said, the Clinton case and the Nixon case are precedents for the idea that the Supreme Court is very, very clear about the limits of presidential immunity. They've said the president is not above the law. President Trump had long promised to release his tax returns, but had fought tooth and nail to keep them secret. The Supreme Court's decision now making his position far more tenuous than before. I'm Sherman Bricepees in New York. Six candidates vying to become the next head of the World Trade Organization, an institution which has faced mammoth challenges even before the COVID-19 pandemic-driven global economic crisis struck. The window to enter the race was slammed shut on Wednesday in a speeded-up contest to replace the outgoing WTO Director General Roberto Azevedo, the Brazilian career diplomat who is stepping down one year early at the end of August. The six candidates in the running are from Egypt, Kenya, Mexico, Moldova, Nigeria and South Korea. To discuss this further, we are joined on the line by Trudy Hatzenberg, Executive Director of South Africa's Trade Law Society. Good morning, Trudy, and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lulu. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Trudy, this is a contest that will be very closely watched. Um, Seven candidates have put their names in the hat. Who do you think stands a very good chance of taking this post? Lulu, in fact, um, another one sneaked in before nominations closed on Wednesday. So we actually have eight candidates right now. So it's, it's an open race at this stage. I must say, when we take a look at the profiles of the candidates, they're all incredibly impressive. Of course, the challenge of guiding the World Trade Organization at this very complex time, as you've indicated, takes on very, very special, not only political, but also technical, substantive significance. Very important to note, we have three women, and Africa has three candidates. And um, at this stage, when we take a look at reports, our two women candidates from, from Africa are standing a very, very good chance. So we have, on the one hand, from Nigeria, Dr. Okonjo Iwole, and then from Kenya, a very late entry on the 7th of July, um, Ambassador Amina Mohammed. Now, she has a long distinguished career in the WTO itself, but also, of course, at home in various ministerial portfolios. So two very strong women. We have the third one from, from Egypt as well. And then keep in mind that on the 8th of July, Dr. Liam Fox from the United Kingdom came into the mix as well. Now, this is interesting because, of course, Brexit is looming large before the end of the year. And so the United Kingdom finds itself in a very interesting position to find a new role as an independent member state within the World Trade Organization. It's an interesting time, not only because of COVID, as you correctly point out, the challenges in the World Trade Organization precede that by quite a long time. And some of them are fairly obvious. We now have 164 members of the World Trade Organization. It's a member-driven organization, and they take decisions by consensus. Can you imagine getting 164 member states to agree on some very, very sensitive issues related to international trade liberalization and governance? Very important. Also, of course, 
the dispute settlement understanding is not functional since December last year. And the reason has been that it has not been possible for the appellate body to function. It needs at least three members to have a quorum to make decisions which are taken on appeal from the panel's decisions in disputes between member states. And the United States has been blocking those appointments. But we have now a new proposal for an arbitration, an interim arbitration process to replace that. But um, we're facing unprecedented challenges in international trade. And of course, COVID has highlighted some of the vulnerabilities, particularly for developing and least developed countries. So the role of the World Trade Organization to reform, to transform, and to take on new agendas, because keep in mind, We've only had one new multilateral trade agreement since the establishment of the WTO in, in 1995, and that's the Trade Facilitation Agreement. And although it's entered into force, many countries, and, and we include many African countries on this list, have not yet fully implemented this. But since 1995, of course, the world is a completely different place, digital trade digital economy development, the role of trade and services, and many, many other issues, as well as the role of China in the global economy, has posed new significant challenges. Um, I think some members have been concerned about the role of China in the global economy and the role of China in the WTO since its accession in 2001, because, of course, the rules were not designed to deal with a model of state capitalism, where the state plays such an important role in the productive sector of the economy, but also supports through state aid its private enterprises so significantly as China does. The model that we had agreed on at the end of the 1980s, early 1990s, was a very much a liberal, perhaps even a neoliberal economic model where, where the state did not subsidize its it's, it's private sector to the extent that, that we see now. So now, Trudy, you know, just the, the, all of that and, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the fact that the person the, or the person coming into this role has a mammoth number of challenges that they're going to be facing. Um, you've touched on most of them. And what do you think um, they should do as uh, the first point of action in that role? You know, this is going to be an enormous political and diplomatic challenge. We require somebody with strong strategic leadership who can actually broker a very important conversation to start agreeing on exactly how we approach the reform agenda. It's extremely important, of course, to bring the big players into that conversation. And a little bit concerning, of course, that we've heard President Trump threatening to withdraw from the World Trade Organization. That would not be a positive development for world trade governance. So keeping in mind that we find ourselves at a rather unique juncture when it comes to global economic and specifically trade governance, diplomatic skills and the political gravitas to bring together all of these nations with their very, very different demands is going to be quite a challenge. And of course, what we do have to keep in mind is that in the last number of years, we've seen a proliferation of free trade agreements, regional trade agreements. And of course, 
we're doing the same in Africa with our mm. African continental free trade area. So the issue around the multiple streams of governance for global trade is something that has to be on that agenda as well. How mm. will we factor that into a new a renewed and a reformed World Trade Organization going forward. Now, Trudy, let's also touch on uh, the outgoing Director General, uh, Roberto Azevedo, um, a Brazilian career diplomat, you know, stepping down a year earlier than uh, at the end of August. Um, how would you describe him? How would you have uh, described him as an individual and uh, the effects of his role at the WTO? I think we have to recognize that his tenure has been a rather difficult one. He has had some really difficult um, issues to deal with. The issues around the dispute settlement arrangement, the fact that the negotiations process is basically ground to a very, very slow place, if making progress at all. So it hasn't been an easy time to manage, to manage these issues. But I do think that the conversations that have been ongoing during the last few years in the World Trade Organization have brought onto the agenda the kind of practical challenges that we have to challenge head on and that are not effectively incorporated perhaps in all the WTO agreements. I think progress on, for example, the digital economy developments, this is absolutely important. The digital economy is now the economy Mm. and simply don't have multilateral governance instruments to deal with the reality which across the world impacts even the smallest least developed country in Africa as well as the largest economy. uh, Trudy, unfortunately we have run out of time but very quickly um, an African female in the role of uh, the head of the WTO what would this mean for Africa as a continent? Very quickly. I think this could be a very significant opportunity for Africa to bring Africa's agenda, the particular challenges that African countries face. Keep in mind of the world's 47 least developed countries, 33 are African. Many of them are landlocked. Many of them are small island economies. We bring a broad range of important development issues to that agenda. And if she can give voice, effective voice to African countries, but also to get African countries to start using the dispute settlement arrangement once we have an up and running arrangement, to use that more effectively to our advantage would be an enormous contribution to Africa's development. Trudy, Trudy, we have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure, thank you. That's Trudy Hatzenberg, Executive Director of Trade Law Center here in South Africa, joining us on the line. For your latest update on the novel coronavirus, also called COVID 19, for Channel Africa from Planta in Malawi, I am George Mohango. Washing your hands with soap and water or using alcohol based hand rub kills viruses that may be on your hands. 
at 7.22 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The Water Research Commission, in partnership with the SADC-based Waternet, is hosting a multinational virtual hackathon that aims to inspire young people to use technology in contribution towards solutions in the wake of COVID-19. The hackathon, which takes place today and tomorrow, presents two challenges to be worked on. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Mamushuding Tlachale, Head of International Partnerships at the Water Research Commission. Dr. Tlachale, good morning and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lulu and the listeners of um, Channel Africa and thank you for having me. Now, Doc, this hackathon, why a hackathon? Just take us through that process. Okay, we're doing a hackathon because as a Water Research Commission, you know that we are a government um, entity that is established to fund and guide research, water and sanitation research in the country. So, But we're not only focusing on research, we also want to bring tech and innovations to resolve um, challenges that we are seeing in the, in, the, in the country. So with the hackathon, it is a platform or an event that allows us to bring together teams with multidisciplinary skills that will then be helping us to find technological solutions to resolve the water challenges. So we opted for this hackathon in addition to actually more things that we are doing as a Water Research Commission, such as um, developing material to raise awareness of COVID-19, the webinars that we host to make people share information and experiences on how they um, respond to COVID-19 epidemic, and also um, a newly program that we launched in May to do um, the COVID-19 uh, prevalence testing in wastewater treatment plants. So the hackathon then gives us a technological way of also still contributing to the country and the SADC region because we're doing this in partnership on, of, with Waternet to find solutions to this COVID-19. And who can participate in this, in this hackathon? Um, the people that participate as hackers, which is this um, a team of uh, young people that we've put together with different skills, being ICT, engineering, research, communication, to come and put together the solution for us, are the ones that will be working behind the scenes to give us the solution. However, we are running a two-day program today and tomorrow for anyone who'd like to really participate and learn about what is hacking and learn about design thinking, because design thinking is a methodology and an approach that the hackers will be using to find solutions. So anyone who's interested to get some um, information on design thinking, because we'll be running masterclasses between today and tomorrow, teaching people on design thinking, teaching people on how you make a good pitch, and also having a dialogue on youth unemployment, because it's a very serious issue for South Africa, SADC region, and Africa as a whole. So anyone can participate in the two-day online or, or on-site kind of program that we have put in place while the hackers uh, behind the scene are doing their thing. What happens then from 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 here on going forward with regards to um, once uh, the hackathon has, has has closed up and uh, you know the information that is disseminated from the hackathon, you know, give us details and exactly um, what the implementation process will be thereafter. Okay, maybe just to first, Lulu, start with the challenges that we are running so that people are aware of what we're looking at. So we have two challenges that we are, as I've said, running with our main partner, Waternet, which is a subsidiary of the SADC um, 
water division and a regional network of universities, training institutions and researchers to build capacity in the SADC region. So the two challenges that we're looking at is the first one is for um, the hackers to find a solution for us as to how we can prevent the transmission and spread of COVID-19 in rural and peri-urban areas where people are sharing water resources. We know that in South Africa, SADC and the rest of the continent and elsewhere, there are people or communities that use communal services for hand-washing services, for example, or toilets. So we want a solution that can help us track the movement, um, evaluate what is happening with those communal services to prevent the spread. And the second challenge is where we're saying as human beings, we, we know that we are water scarce in the SADC region, but our diet, our lifestyle, and our behavior affect or even add more uh, pressure into this limited water resources that we're having. And with this challenge, we are saying we want the hackers to give us a solution that will track the human water footprint, so the, the way we're using the water, and also advises how we can take down our water use but in the sense that we are really trying to say, let's try and, and not use the water uh, um, irresponsibly. So the second challenge will be creating a human water footprint tracker for us. And uh, what we're going to be doing over the next two days, we have a program, as I've said, program for everyone who's interested, and you can access it at wrc hackathoncoza and then the hackers on the other side will be working. And then um, what we will do then is during today and tomorrow, the hackers will be coming just to give a snapshot of what they are currently working on, the highlights. However, the judging will happen in a closed um, uh, session on Sunday where the judges from the Waternet, IBM, and the Innovation Hub will be helping us to judge and give the, the, the prizes. We have prizes that we're giving to the winners for both challenges, which includes cash, but also opportunities for them to have, attend courses on design thinking and also present the solutions that they would have uh, prepared during an international conference that we will select at the later stage. And because the judging session is a closed session, what we will do is it will be recorded and we will share it with um, on our our this site that I've mentioned, wrc-hackathon.co.za, so that people can see the judging process as it happens. And of course, we will announce also the winners of the two challenges. Dr. Tlachale, thank you so much for all that information. Please repeat that uh, um, website where everyone can get information as to um, what the process is, how they can take part, and, uh, you know, the prizes and, uh, you know, what it means uh, going forward in this hackathon. Okay, the website is wrc-hackathon.co.za and we also have in that page the contact details of our events manager, Zamazulu, who people can raise with if they are interested to get more information. Dr. Tlachale, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you very much and we look forward to um, seeing you in this weekend of coding. Please stay safe. Keep washing your hands and please respect the regulations that are put in our countries to make sure that we curb this COVID-19 virus. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Doc. That is Dr. Mamutloding Tlachale, Head of International Partnerships at the Water Research Commission, joining us on the line and giving us some details about a hackathon that is going to be taking place. Um, and with two challenges, uh, you know, uh, solving a COVID-19 water and sanitation problem and, uh, you know, the ongoing water situation that uh, we're dealing with uh, in the SADC region. Madiba once said, we have the power to change the world and make it a better place. It is in your hands to make a difference. As we celebrate this icon and great human being this July, 
Let us not forget the lessons he taught us as a nation. Lessons of kindness, of uplifting not only yourself but those in your community. Lessons of compassion for our fellow men. As we celebrate Madiba Month, remember to do your bit and make a difference. SABC celebrates Madiba Month. Hashtag, his legacy lives. It's 7.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Aman Musa, good morning. In the headlines, South Africa has recorded the biggest jump to date in a 24-hour cycle, recording 13,674 new cases of the coronavirus. This brings the national total to 238,339. Former Liberian President Eileen Johnson Salifa and New Zealand's former Prime Minister Helen Clark have been appointed to head the World Health Organization's new panel to evaluate the world's response to the coronavirus pandemic. And the United States of America has warned West Africa's Sahel nations that it could withdraw its support if security forces violate human rights. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza, Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. Stigma based on fear and misinformation is contributing to the ongoing COVID-19 community transmission in many countries. This is a concern raised by the Core Group Polio Project. The CGPP is a multi-country, multi-partner initiative that has been helping polio-burdened countries eradicate the disease. The CGPP is now working to shape context-specific responses to growing cases of COVID-19 social stigma in a number of countries. To discuss its work in South Sudan, where it is becoming harder and harder to fight the pandemic, we are now joined on the line by the country secretariat director, Anthony Kisanga. Anthony, good morning and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Uh, Thank you. Morning. Now, briefly paint a picture for us of uh, the situate the COVID nineteen situation in South Sudan. Yeah, uh, as you know, Core Group uh, Polio Project has been working in South Sudan for over ten years now, and initially our program in South Sudan is more to strengthen the government capacity in terms of polio eradication. However, with the the the, the 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 knowledge we had and the experience we had in terms of polio and education in South Sudan, we are able to integrate measles. Then uh, Ebola came around. We were able to integrate Ebola. Unfortunately, this year uh, we had an unfortunate event where uh, there was you know like a COVID uh, pandemic that South Sudan became a victim. Uh, on the 5th of April, we are able to report the first case in the country. However, when the first uh, case was reported, 
it actually made the country go numb. Everybody was shocked, shocked, and uh, because one, people do not know much about COVID. There was no much information about COVID. In South Sudan, people thought COVID is actually characterized, actually termed as death. Once you have COVID, that means you're going to die. So all those issues kind of like made, put fear in every person in South Sudan. That resulted into what we call a stigma. So it raises, you know, the level of stigma in everybody in South Sudan. So with the stigma, it became, you know, like it resulted into discrimination. Every person who has been actually uh, tested as COVID positive, you are actually discriminated by your family, you are discriminated by your friends and by the community. Because people do not know that actually majority of the people with COVID will get health. So what happened was with all this stigmatization and discrimination, it resulted in people not actually in terms of, you know, like revealing positive cases, refuse now to reveal their own uh, contacts. So it became a really a very big issue in terms of revealing contacts. People, re, you know, refuse to go for testing, and government has put kind of like uh, directives, you know, uh, for in, uh, infection prevention and control in place. But because of that stigma, the community actually refused now to adhere to that. Now, so, Anthony, with time. With regards to the CGPP and, uh, you know, addressing the issues you've just outlined and, you know, obviously it makes your work um, very difficult, the misinformation. What is the CGPP doing to try and mitigate um, the issues that you're facing? And as the government of South Sudan, how are they handling the situation and ensuring that uh, people are made aware, given the correct information with regards regards to COVID, this COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, what I'm saying is like when uh, this, uh, when we reported our first cases with time, you know, because of the stigma, discrimination, and people refused now to adhere to infection prevention control, it resulted actually to community transmission. And with that, you know, like from just one case, we didn't know Within very few time, it went like the cases started rising. As we talk now, we have over two thousand and over one two thousand and hundred cases in the country within just few months. And one of the most important things that we, we we saw was the information that was put out, whether by partners or by government, was that actually COVID nineteen is equated to kind of death. So that actually instilled fear in people. Then we saw as CGPP are looking at contact tracers. Contact tracers are rejected in the community because they are not part of the community. 
you know, they are sent from somewhere. So what CGPD did was kind of look at this, what information is put down there? Is it all about fear? We said no. And looking at the proportion of people who died of COVID in South Sudan, actually up to today we have only 40 cases that died. We have almost 900, over 900 uh, recoveries in the country, which actually equals almost close, actually yesterday was actually 1,054, which almost equate to 50% of recoveries in the country. The death proportion is like 1.8%. So we said, okay, what do we what do we do? Do we need to instill fear, messages of fear? We say no. So what we did was like recruit people within the community who are known by the community, who the community trust, what we call community key informants. We train them and kind of use them as contact tracers. The same time, we use them to kind of like inform the people that COVID is not dead. And we use these people now to kind of like sensitize their own community rather than bringing people from outside. So that is what CGP did, you know, kind of to change. The second thing, apparently, actually the messages that are going in, you know, like from partners, from the government is changing from equating COVID-19 to death to saying, actually, you know, COVID-19 is not dead and kind of like saying people can basically get healed from COVID-19 rather than actually putting messages of fear. So that is what is changing currently in terms of government, in terms of partners, with, in terms of CDPP, we use the own community people to kind of send message of hope. Now, is the so media is playing... Is the media playing, uh, a, you know, a big role in terms of giving understanding to the listeners uh, with regards to what COVID-19 is and uh, how they can better take care of themselves with regards to dealing and facing this pandemic? And uh, are you doing more tests? Are people coming forward and getting tested? So in, in terms of uh, the media... Actually, as I said, from the beginning, the media kind of put kind of message of fear into people. But with time, I think they realize, and now they are changing into putting message of hope. Unfortunately, in South Sudan, the media is only, you know, like within urban areas, where majority, over 80% of people have no access to media, you know. So what CGP is doing now is targeting the people who do not have access to media, whether being radio, TV, newspaper, or magazine. You know, so that is what is happening, and we are kind of reaching the people in the remotest area who cannot be able to be reached with this kind of media. But fortunately enough, now within the urban areas where there is access to media, it's actually changing. The messages are changing from message of fear to message of hope currently. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us. We'll leave it there for now. Thank you.
Thank you very much. That's uh, Anthony Kisanga, Country Director of the Core Group Polio Project in South Sudan, giving us an update of the COVID-19 developments in the country um, with the pandemic growing in South Sudan. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. We call upon church leaders to really cooperate with government. It is the church which can help us to stop this crisis. The church should not contribute to this crisis negatively. We are calling upon our church leaders to listen to our premiers, our mayors and the president. Let's work together to reduce the spread of this uh, virus. South Africa, it is possible. We are here because unity of purpose is necessary. Channel Africa. It's 7.43 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio package Channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. A veteran South African actress and entertainer, Mam Mary Twala, has been laid to rest yesterday. The service was being held at the Grace Bible Church in Soweto, south of Johannesburg, and was streamed live on several platforms, including her son, Somizim Songo's Twitter account. Channel Africa's Musibudi Makura reports. Due to the current global COVID-19 pandemic, the funeral adhered to the current national funeral restrictions of only 50 attendees allowed, together with the necessary health protocols being observed. No member of the public was permitted to attend the funeral. Twala who was officially known as Mama Mary, captivated South African households with her incomparable talent. The devastating news of Twala's passing at the age of 79 had been announced on social media by her son, Somizi Mshongo Mudawung, last Saturday, several days after she had been admitted to Nedke's Park Lane Hospital in Johannesburg. Somizi is comforted by the fact that his mother's last wishes were honored. And today she's in the most beautiful coffin and the most beautiful decoration. But also it's because she asked for it. She said she wants a lot of flowers. And she said it funny enough on Saturday. Before she passed on, she told the doctor that she wants a lot of flowers and she wants to be dressed in the same dress she wore at the wedding, at our wedding. And this is just for her. The grief-stricken Somizi thanked South Africans for embracing and celebrating his mother until her last days on earth. I'd like to thank South Africa as well for really loving my mother. A lot of people when their parents, especially in the show business, when they pass on, they still have that pain that our parents were not appreciated. I would be lying if I say my mother was not appreciated. MLA, Wesley, you guys, you have done amazing for my mother. Thank you. South Africa, you have shown my mother the presidency and the president you have really given my mother flowers when she, she could still smell them. 
anything that happens after this is just a bonus. It's not out of guilt. It's not out of trying to make up. You have nothing to make up. Everyone in South Africa, rest assured, you have nothing to make up for. You have, you have loved my mother. Mama Mary passed away on her late husband's birthday, Ndabam Thongo, and her son Somizi said his mother's timing was impeccable. My mother was also the most punctual person I know, so I know that even her death was on time. And her timing is always impeccable, to a point where she lives just around my dad's birthday and she's buried on my husband's birthday. That is my mother for you. So Mizi concluded by simply thanking his mother. I would like to say to my mother, thank you. Thank you for instilling everything that I am today. I know I've lost a mother on earth, but I've gained the most powerful ancestor. Don't be surprised. Anyone shouldn't be surprised if... I rise beyond because I've got the most generous ancestor. And Mama, I know how when you're angry, how you become. So I promise never to make you an angry ancestor because I don't want you on the wrong side of anything. As a boy. Thank you for everything. I love you. Legendary gospel singer Rebecca Malope paid an emotional musical tribute as Mama Mary's coffin was opened for viewing for those in attendance. Somizi was so overcome with emotion at that point that he could barely walk. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Mosibu Dimakura in Johannesburg. It's 7.50 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoko.
A very good morning. South Africa's National Union of Metal Workers has described the Labour Appeal Court's ruling against the business rescue practitioners at South African Airways as a victory for the workers at the airline. On Thursday, the court ruled that the BRPs must submit a business rescue plan before commencing with retrenchments. The BRPs had appealed the Labour Court's ruling in May, which found that the proposed retrenchments at the airline were procedurally unfair. They had sought clarity on whether a plan was first required before commencing the retrenchment process. The BRPs say they are struggling the latest judgment. NUMSA spokesperson Pagamila Tlubi Majola. The LAC upheld the decision of the Labour Court, which found that Section 136.1 or Chapter 6 of the Companies Act does not empower a business rescue practitioner to retrench employees in the absence of a business rescue plan. Although the appeal was heard after the BRPs at SAA finally published a plan, it was important for us to defend the decision of the Labour Court because it had far-reaching implications for workers. There are many companies which have filed for business rescue in our country, and the judgment effectively means that BRPs may not be used by employers to prune the business by cutting jobs. The South African Cabin Crew Association Deputy President Christopher Shabangu says that they also welcome the court ruling. So you cannot just come to a workplace and say you want to retrench so many workers without having a plan as to, how, as to why you want to do that and how is that going to improve the business. Uh, which was the case at SAA, where the business rescue practitioners were in a hurry to, to, to get rid of workers without having a plan. So this is, sets a standard, a precedence, which is going to actually help in, in, in such uh, situations. Lesotho has amended the Prevention of Corruption and Economic Offences Act to equip the Directorate on Corruption and Economic Offences with powers to investigate money laundering beyond national borders. Previously, the DCEO could only investigate money laundering with Lesotho. The amendment will allow the Directorate to collaborate with the similar entities from other countries in fighting international financial crimes. The amendment was initiated by Minister of Justice and Law, Musa Mahau. Air Botswana will reintroduce the airline's scheduled domestic operations from the 17th of this month. General Manager Agnes Kunwana says that the resumption is subject to health and safety protocols and the new ways of working. Kunwana says that the airline shall gradually increase the frequency of operations on the basis of demand and reinstate regional operations as soon as current travel restrictions are lifted. Malawi is among the top five African countries to benefit from the common market for Eastern and Southern Africa digital financial inclusion. The regional bloc is implementing a digital financial inclusion aimed at promoting trade with the region and includes marginalized communities. Governor of the Reserve Bank of Malawi says interoperability is key to commercial banks and network operators for the uptake of digital financial services. The US dollar is trading at 386.17 Nigerian Ara, 11.48 Botswana Pula, 105.94 Kenyan Shilling and 17.99 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies will start in Brazil 
one US dollar will cost you five real thirty-three in Russia, seventy rubles ninety-two in India, seventy-four rupees seventy-five in China, six yuan ninety-nine, and in South Africa, a dollar will cost you sixteen rand eighty-six. The US dollar is also trading at seventy-nine pence to the British pound and at eighty-eight cents to the euro. Gold one thousand eight oh five dollars, platinum eight twenty-seven dollars per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is forty-two dollars five cents a barrel. Africa rise and shine. Africa rise and shine Africa zorza Africa amka na unai That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today and for the week from myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Luanda Maume, technical producer Swiso Mashejo and the rest of the Africa Rise and Shine team, thank you for joining us. For comments on our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Channel Africa One. Our taking us to the top of our for the news is Lion of Judah by Lebu Sekhobela. Have a great weekend and keep safe.